This is Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Hoover, your host and director of communications at the ACLU of PA. These are strange times living in a pandemic, and the civil liberties implications are significant. So for this episode, I talked with three of my colleagues, Executive Director Reggie Shuford, Legal Director Vic Volchek, and Criminal Justice Policy Counsel Nisa Taylor. Reggie, Nisa, and Vic offer their insights about the many civil liberties challenges presented by the coronavirus and how ACLUPA has risen to the challenge. By the time you hear this, it is entirely possible that there will be more news. So be sure to check out our website and follow us on social media. In fact, we had two new developments on Friday after we recorded this conversation. First, the state Supreme Court issued its response to our emergency request regarding county jails. While the court did not go as far as we would have liked, the justices did direct every county court in the state to take immediate action to review the ability of their jails to limit the spread of COVID-19. The justices also said that if a jail is not able to implement public health best practices, then the county court must review individuals or categories of people for release. The court also directed the county courts to limit the admissions of new people into the county jails. Also on Friday, our legal team filed a new lawsuit against federal immigration officials and the wardens of two county jails to free 22 people who are in immigration detention and are at high risk of contracting COVID-19. You can find updated information about our work related to the pandemic at aclupa.org COVID-19. This conversation was recorded on April 2nd. Reggie, let's start with you. It's been three weeks since the declaration of the national emergency. It's been three weeks since we all scattered from our offices of the ACLU of Pennsylvania and headed to our homes. Um, from your perspective as executive director, how are you feeling about how ACLU PA is handling this pandemic? Honestly, I could not be more proud. Um, and under the very dire circumstances, I think it's going extremely well. Um, folks are working harder than ever. In fact, I tell them that they're working too hard, that we need to pace ourselves because we're going to be um, sadly uh, experiencing uh, this crisis for some more time to come. And so we need to pace ourselves so that we don't get burned out. We're juggling home and family obligations, concerns about our health and the health of loved ones, but the work is not stopping. It's not slowing down. If anything, it's really picked up and it's effective. It's not just that we're doing work. We're doing really vital, um, life-saving work. And I'm excited to hear, um, and have mm -hmm. our listeners hear more about that work from our other colleagues on the call. You know, Andy, I say this a lot. I'm, I'm always proud of, of our team, our staff. They always are working hard, but I've never been more proud. Um, I'm prouder of them in this moment than, than I've ever been because of the work that they're doing. Well, I know everybody appreciates hearing that uh, among, among the staff. This is a bit insidery, but you are also the chair of the ACLU's Executive Directors Council. That is a space where executive directors of state affiliates from around the country can 
share ideas, collaborate, talk about things they're they're facing. Um, what's your sense of how things are going for ACLU affiliates nationwide? What kind of challenges are you hearing about? It's largely the same issues that we are experiencing here uh, in, in Pennsylvania. I'm trying to quickly um, and effectively respond to the various emerging issues. They sort of reveal themselves almost on a you know minute by minute, hour by hour basis, it seems. And as, an, as important as the work is, a lot of the conversations with my colleagues around the country have to do with taking care of our people, right? How do we manage expectations around the work, given that people have these competing obligations and responsibilities? Um, how do we moderate those expectations for you know, organizations that are type A, high achieving organizations, always interested in doing you know, what we can to, to, to advocate on the most vulnerable among us, but in this moment needing to kind of slow down a bit? How do we, how do we get staff to slow down uh, in terms of making sure that they're taking care of themselves too? So far, um, as much as folks are concerned about, uh, you know, doing the work that we do on behalf of our clients, um, making sure that we're taking care of our, our staff and our people too are the issues that, um, that I'm hearing a whole lot about. But with that in mind, let's talk a little bit about some of the work that has been happening. Vic, you oversee our legal department here at the ACLU of Pennsylvania. At this point, three weeks in, what are some of the most significant challenges you're seeing? We've had largely a, a singular focus right now when we realized how serious this was you know, probably three weeks ago. And um, you know, our, our first concern immediately went to people who are in detention. But uh, our, our approach has been all along that whatever we do has to be driven by evidence, has to be driven by science, has to be driven by medicine. And so we reached out to a number of public health officials around the country and had a discussion with them. And they not only confirmed our suspicions about the dangers facing people in detention, they, they basically took us to DEFCON 3. They have been singing the alarms about what people are facing inside detention. And just one figure to sort of highlight this is that if you are over 65 and have um, one of a number of pre-existing medical conditions, and that includes things like uh, asthma, diabetes, some kind of liver dysfunction, and, and a number of other things, your, your chance of death if you contract COVID-19 is about one in seven. And, and it's much higher than that for getting seriously ill, maybe needing a ventilator and possibly having some permanent partial disability from that. So, so we've really been focused on, on detention issues and trying to get as many people out as, as we can. Well, with that in mind, let's talk a little bit about immigration. Uh, you are co-counsel on a lawsuit that we filed. It challenged the detention of people in ICE custody who are vulnerable to contracting COVID-19. Uh, we had a great outcome. Uh, a, a court in the Middle District of Pennsylvania ruled that uh, our clients needed to be released immediately. Tell us more about that case. Yeah, so uh, ICE houses uh, more immigration detainees in Pennsylvania than any other state in the Northeastern US. Um, York is the single largest immigration detention center in the Northeast, but they also use Pike County and Clinton County and Cambria County jails to house people. And 
we, we'd already heard stories that people were being quarantined in there. There were people who were symptomatic. Nobody's being tested. And people literally are living on top of each other at Pike County. They're triple celled. That means three people in a 12 by eight foot cage, which includes a bunk bed, a regular bed, a sink and a toilet. I mean, there's, there's no way you can get more than a few feet apart. In other places, you've got 50 or 60 people in a room sleeping, bunk bed next to bunk bed, uh, sharing four toilets and, and, and showers without appropriate hygiene. It, it is literally a, a, a Petri dish just, just waiting to explode. And given that and um, those kind of conditions and given the, the really heightened danger for people who are older or have these pre-existing conditions. We focused on them and filed a lawsuit about a week ago, an emergency lawsuit in federal court in Harrisburg, um, asking the judge to release these people. Uh, started out with 13, literally from around the world. I think 10 countries are represented. So if you're thinking just Latin America, that's not true. People from China, India, Liberia, Nigeria, Trinidad and Tobago, uh, Jamaica, Haiti, just people from all around the world. And then lo and behold, on, on Tuesday, we got probably the strongest decision that has come out anywhere in the country at this point was not the first decision ordering people released, but it was the largest group of individuals. And I think, as I said, the strongest decision. Um, and the judge just recognized what a Kind of unprecedented historic time we're in and that that we need to act quickly we need to act boldly and he ordered all of our clients released um, on their own recognizance and they were all released except one that same day the last person had some technicalities and he was released the next day so they're they're all out now so that case was filed on behalf of 13 people, but surely there are more than 13 people who are in the same situation in immigration detention. Could this ruling prompt additional legal action? Uh, yes, it, it could and, and likely will prompt another round. I mean, we are now talking to individuals to try to identify those who are most at risk. Um, and I expect that the ACLU Pennsylvania will be taken another shot in, in federal court to get more of these folks out of detention. Bernisa, I want to pivot over to you to talk a little bit about jails and prisons. I actually just want to start there. Sometimes those words are used interchangeably, but they actually mean something different in terms of the institutions. Um, can you just talk a little bit about the difference between jails and prisons and who impacts those systems? Sure. Thank you, Andy. So state prisons are where people are serving sentences of greater than one to two years. County jails are located in every county or almost every county in Pennsylvania, and anyone who is in a county jail is either serving less than a one to two year sentence, so they're serving 11 and a half to 23 months or less. They are there pre-trial, or they are there on violations of probation, sort of technicalities. And it's important to understand state prisons and county jails have two different authorities that have jurisdiction over them. So for those people who are incarcerated in state prison, the executive branch, so Governor Wolf, the Department of Corrections, the Board of Parole, they are the ones who control whether or not someone will be released from state prison. Now, 
for those people who are in county jails, that is up to the local court. Uh, the local courts have jurisdiction over all of the people who are currently in county jails. And so that's sort of how we separate those two. So with that in mind, I want to I focus in on the county jails first. We've uh, tried to engage in a number of actions. Once this public emergency started, we leaned on some individual counties, particularly the two biggest counties uh, in the state, Philadelphia and Allegheny. We sent a letter to the Secretary of Health asking the Secretary to provide guidance to courts to either keep people out of the county jails or release them. Those actions have had mixed results. So now uh, we have filed an emergency request with the state Supreme Court to issue an order to the county courts about how to handle this situation. Can you tell us more about that request? Yes. So I want to reiterate something that Vic just said. Our county jails, they really pose one of the largest threats to not just those who are in custody, but to staff and to surrounding communities. They will be a petri dish for this virus, for this pandemic. And the virus does not respect jail walls. People go in and out of jails every day. So as we see this virus, you know, starting to erupt in the jails, we will see it spreading to the nearby communities. And it's also, again, as, as Vic just mentioned, it's also really important to remember social distancing and hygiene are impossible in the county jails right now because of the way that people are being housed. So public health experts are warning us, you have to release people. Otherwise, we will literally see this as the epicenter of, of the virus. And we also, frankly, have not been seeing strong action from most counties across the state. Some counties, Allegheny County, have been successful at releasing people, although we unfortunately learned that that has not improved the social distancing within Allegheny County Jail. But many other counties are simply just not, either not releasing people or doing it insufficiently and not quickly enough for it to make a real difference. So we petitioned the Supreme Court under a unique jurisdiction that is unique to Pennsylvania, the King's Bench jurisdiction, which is this unique procedure where we basically say to the Supreme Court, there is a matter of the utmost importance that we need you to pay attention to right now. And you as the highest court in the Commonwealth have the power to do something. So we asked the court to release whole categories of people in order to reduce the population of jails and lessen the crowding to allow jail to better comply with the CDC guidance and to ensure that those who are elderly, those who are sick, those who have other comorbidities or other health problems are not dying en masse inside the jail. We asked the court to release those who are uh, sick and elderly, to release those who have nearly completed their sentences. And again, I wanna reiterate that anyone who is serving a sentence in a county jail will be serving a sentence that is less than 11 and a half to 23 months. So we are not talking about folks who are serving sentences for serious crimes inside county jails. Most of these are minor offenses. And then also to release those people who are being held because they can't afford to pay cash bail or are being held on technical violations of probation. So really just to direct counties to do everything they can to um, ensure that 
that, that we mitigate this threat as best as possible. And I also do just want to put a quick pin in, we are not doing this blindly without respect to public safety. One of the other things we asked the Supreme Court to do was to give prosecutors in each county the opportunity to object to release should they believe that an individual should not be released for public safety concerns. Anissa, I do want to talk about the state prisons as well. You've been involved in that effort. And to, to date, that has not been a legal action. It's been an advocacy push to get Governor Wolf to use executive powers and other state agencies, for that matter, mm-hmm. to use executive powers um, to release people who are vulnerable to contracting COVID-19 and uh, maybe some other categories of people, such as those that have already served their minimum sentence. Mm-hmm. Our analysis is that the governor does have the power of reprieve, which is in the Constitution. Um, what's that about, and, and how could the governor alleviate or, or minimize the, um, the risk of coronavirus in the state prisons? So this is a pretty unusual power and a pretty broad power that the governor has. Reprieve is something where the governor can basically put a pause in someone's sentence and say, you are reprieved for 45 days. It sort of puts a pause in someone's sentence. They can be released, and then they have to return at the end of the time. So similar to a furlough, but much broader, a much broader power for the governor. And he has used this power previously. Governor Wolf has used this power to stay death sentences. And so what we're asking the governor is please consider issuing broad powers of reprieve for everyone who is vulnerable in state prisons. Let those who are 65 and elderly, let them go home for a period of time until this health crisis has passed. So to really consider using that power to protect those who are vulnerable inside. Um, And you, you also mentioned parole. We are really pushing the Department of Corrections as well as Governor Wolf to consider expediting presumptive parole. So everyone who has served their minimum, expedite those paroles so people can be released from state prison as quickly as possible. Because state prisons have similar issues with crowding and an inability to practice social distancing and hygiene that jails have. So we have been talking about jails and prisons and detention centers. I do want to pivot to voting rights because voting rights are in play as a result of this pandemic. As a lot of folks know, people listening to this may know, Pennsylvania's primary election has been delayed um, as a result of a bill passed by the legislature and signed by the governor. The primary election has been moved from April 28th to June 2nd. Now, we ended up taking no position on that. Obviously, we're all living through this pandemic. We recognize the reality of the situation. I've actually been reading news reports that some poll workers in other states who had primaries uh, earlier in March uh, have tested positive. So we certainly understand it made sense to delay the primary. By chance, luckily, uh, the state actually just implemented a new vote by mail option for all voters. Uh, You do not need an excuse to vote by mail. And so we have been encouraging people to consider that as a replacement for in-person voting. And folks should definitely check out the Department of State's website, votespa.com. Vic, you've been involved in a lot of voting rights issues over the years. I know we all have some concerns uh, when state officials start talking about delaying elections. Yeah, it's as I said at the outset, 
we decided early on as an organization that whatever we're doing has to be guided by by evidence, by science, by medicine. And just the concerns about poll workers, about voters, about spreading the disease. And I think the the science supports delaying the primary now and and you know it's not quite as consequential. It's just a primary. So it's sort of like you know the, the setup for the for the real match. But it it does raise serious concerns about whether officials who think that they might want to expand their own powers could misuse what we're doing now as an excuse to postpone or cancel elections in the future when they actually are much more consequential and will make a difference. So it's, you know, I think it's really the fear about the precedent of what's happened now, which is probably justifiable and, and necessary, uh, and trying to use that in situations where it isn't simply to be able to keep themselves in power. And the only thing, this is Reggie, that I'd add to that is given the delay, obviously, of the primary to June 2nd, but more importantly, uh, with the general election in November, this should give elections officials uh, ample time to make sure that everybody who's eligible to vote, particularly in November, has the right to do that. I mean, you know, this is kind of a test run, perhaps a primary is, but come come November, it, it, you know, it should have had the the you know sufficient time to make sure that everybody is in fact. Um, able to vote. Yeah, the United States has always held elections through some of its worst crises. Uh, the Civil War is one example where elections went on. And actually, that's from what I understand from uh, listening to an interview with Dale Ho from our national office. That's how the idea of uh, absentee balloting started and was the result of the Civil War. So we've done it before. We can certainly do it again. Um, I have a question for all three of you. And Reggie, we'll start with you. What keeps you up at night specific to this pandemic and civil liberties? What do you fear may be coming next? A, a number of things. I, I would I would say that having been at the ACLU for um, you know, 25 years or so now, eight and a half in Pennsylvania, that um, there have been other um, global and certainly national crises that we've ultimately weathered the storm. Um, but I'm always concerned that the most vulnerable most marginalized people will bear the brunt of the consequences of these crises and government overreach, et cetera. So I'm concerned about people overreaching in this moment to restrict a woman's right to choose. Uh, I'm concerned about people uh, using this opportunity to um, you know, crack down on homeless populations yeah, I'm concerned that people of color will still somehow uh, bear the brunt of, of gov government overreach. Um, but in addition to those things, what keeps me up mostly is just, um, you know, trying to do what I can as a leader of this organization to make sure that my colleagues are safe and have everything they need, um, you know, to be comfortable at home. Uh, as much as possible um, and um, are not having to worry about things that are are beyond their control. Nisa, what about you? What, what do you, what concerns do you have about what may be ahead? I'm really worried about folks dying in prison and jails. 
um, about a month and a half ago, I spent time with the Lifers and the Gray Panthers out at SCI Phoenix. Really awesome group of folks who've dedicated, you know, their lives inside to trying to improve their world and the world outside. And many of them are over 65 and many of them have health conditions. And I am really worried about them making it. And I am also really, I keep thinking about all those loved ones um, who are outside worrying about their people inside and um, just how lucky I am not to have that. And just to just, that's what keeps me up at night thinking about all those folks. And Vic, are there other shoes that you worry maybe dropping here in the weeks ahead? Yeah, so I, I, I mine are kind of a, a mix of Reggie's and Nisa's. Uh, I, I am extremely worried that our cries of alarm about what's going on in, in detention facilities, so prisons, jails, ICE detention, um, will come true. And and it's it's not just that people are going to die on the inside, but it's going to have a, a, a much more profound effect. I mean, just watching what's going on in places that are ahead of Pennsylvania, whether it's New York or, or Seattle, which is at least calming down now, the medical infrastructure is overrun and they can't handle all of the, the, the people coming in who need ventilators and need medical attention. That's coming to Pennsylvania. And if these Petri dishes that are prisons and jails actually explode, those folks are going to need care. And it could be those individuals who are going to need, need attention and are going to overrun the hospital systems. And, it's, and, it, and so many of these jails are in rural areas where you don't have strong medical systems or, or large medical systems or places that even have ICU beds. Um, and they're going to be completely overrun. And that's going to create problems, not just for people on the inside, not just for the staff, but people in the surrounding community and the medical professionals. So it really is just, you know, it's, it's, it's unfortunately the perfect storm, which is why we're working so hard to convince officials that they need to do everything they can to prevent this explosion inside the jails. The second point, which I'll make very quickly, is um, what I said earlier is, is people who are in positions of power who have shown themselves to uh, be inclined to grab as much power for themselves in their office as they can, using what's happening now as an excuse uh, to simply become more powerful. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I, that I think is a is a very real concern. Unfortunately, certainly something the ACLU will fight uh, as an organization with with all of its strength, but. Um, uh, you're already seeing this kind of seizure of power around the world in, in Hungary and Brazil and uh, places like that where they're basically saying, hey, uh, the president is saying, I, I got to have all this power in order to keep us safe. And so I'm basically decreeing myself to, uh, you know, a, a dictator. And, and uh, uh, that is not a place where anybody in this country should want to go. Reggie, you get the closing comment. What's the most important thing ACLU supporters should know right now about how we're handling the pandemic? I think, um, as everybody's heard uh, during um, our conversation, that we're on the job and that we're up to the job and that we're well situated to um, be protecting the civil rights and civil liberties of every Pennsylvania um, and that we're not going to 
slow down um, until we make sure that we've done all um, we can to make sure those rights are preserved. Um, and, you know, fam our own respective family obligations, et cetera, um, we have to juggle those as well. And I, I know that my colleagues are doing the best they can with that too, but um, they're still keeping this important work as a priority. So our supporters and our listeners should know that the work is not gonna stop. We're here to do this job. Well, thank you all three of you for the conversation. Uh, thanks for your great work. Hope you get some rest. Uh, we're recording this on a Thursday, so the weekend is coming. I hope you get a chance to to enjoy your weekend and um, we will keep battling on. Thanks, thank Andy. Thanks, Andy. Again, for updated information on our work related to the pandemic, visit aclupa.org slash COVID-19. If you enjoy this podcast, please be sure to rate us on your podcast app of choice. That helps other listeners find the show. Also, your support is critical for ACLUPA to do what we're doing. Any donation you can make is greatly appreciated. Visit aclupa.org slash donate to learn how. That brings episode 40 to a close. The editor of Speaking Freely is Amy Giacomucci. Our music is from bensound.com. The executive director of ACLUPA is Reggie Shuford. I'm Andy Hoover. Until next time, be healthy and be free.